Bill sounds like radio DJ when he does that. So uh, Fist Sunday, I encourage you to hang out. Uh, I just saw someone brought gooey butter cake for Fifth Sunday, so that's really exciting. Uh, I thought I was going to have a really good cake, but I lose now officially. So um, anyway, also online audience, we realized that we made a big boo-boo with uh, we were not charging the phone that we broadcast from. So I apologize. We're going to pray really hard that you stay with us this whole time. I'll try to keep it brief, but as you know, keeping it brief is not exactly my strong suit. So uh, we'll do our best here. Anyway, um, I want to start today. I want to read you. Um, I want to read you three things here today. Uh, we're going to start a real happy note. The three signs of addiction, uh, the three C's of addiction. Nothing says, "Man, this is really happy start to a sermon." Then let's talk about addiction right now, okay? Uh, but counselors and people who work with addiction, they know uh, they call them the three C's of addiction. So the three C's of addiction are overwhelming cravings, a loss of control. And then continued usage in spite of consequences. So overwhelming cravings, like I can't live without the thing I'm addicted to. Loss of control. So like now, I, like the, the thing I'm addicted to controls my life. I am always thinking about when I can get it, how I can use it, like whatever it is. And then continued usage, even when bad stuff happens to me as a result of my usage. So like I, you know, might get threatened to be fired from work or my spouse threatens they'll leave me or something like that, right? But we still continue using uh, anyway because that's, we're like so addicted, okay? Now, um, Chloe, will you flash this back up on the screen? Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, Wes, why are you starting, like, thank you, that was helpful information, good. Is this like a sermon on addiction? Well, sort of, kind of, okay? I want you to think about those three things as it pertains to your usage of this item in my hand right now, okay? Um, think about your phone, your personal device, right? Do you have an overwhelming craving to use? So I saw eyes get really wide. Yes, I do. Okay. Do you have a loss of control? So like, here's a good indication you have a loss of control. You are looking at your phone and you don't even realize you're looking at it. It's like so second nature, right? I just do it whenever I do. I sleep with my phone, you know, like whatever it, oh, wow. Okay. That, <laughs> that was a, that was not, we're going to talk about that later on. Uh, loss of control. Continued usage and spy consequences. So my partner, my spouse, my friends are like, will you put it down? Like, will you stop it right now? Like, you know, whatever it is, like, you just cannot stop, right? Like, hey, this is the most important meeting of the year, but I'm candy crushing it up right now. I'm on level 9 million right now, and just three more bananas, and I'm all the way there, whatever it is, right? Like, you are just so driven by that, right? Sadly, I think all of us probably meet at least a couple of the criteria here, if not all of the criteria here. And one of the things, like, I talked about a phone. Some of you, you know, I think the younger you are, the easier it is for us to fall into that addiction. But certainly, if it's not your phone, we could think of something else that, like, we're addicted to that's like a little distraction or a thing or whatever. And honestly, we kind of fall into a lot of these sort of, you know, guidelines with that, okay? Um, today, I want to talk to you about uh, one of the reasons that we're doing too much is because... Um, I think we are addicted in our lives. Like the phone for me is kind of a symbol of my addiction to distraction. That I always like to be distracted from like just life, right? We're always kind of perpetually distracted, whether it's our phones, whether it's sports, whether it's music, whether it's talk radio, right? We're always kind of just distracted. Like we're never really given uh, full attention to anything, it feels like. I remember a few years ago, one of the things that felt like a really... 
uh, kind of poignant thing that people would say all the time would be like, be present was like the thing. You know, that was like the cool, like mindfulness from a couple years ago. It was like the word that everyone used was presence, you know. And because we are just so dis- perpetually distracted, it's so easy for us to lose sight of so many things. And, and we just get perpetually distracted by everything. Now, I, like, I'm not trying to hate on your phone or anything, okay? In fact, quite the opposite. I, I don't know if you know this, I also have a phone. I also use a phone, right? Like, I, I'm, I'm with all that. I understand all that, okay? Um, but we are all kind of addicted to distraction. I think, honestly, one of the things that we're trying to distract ourselves from, if not the thing we're trying to distract ourselves from, is often ourselves, and what's going on inside of me. Um, I'll just give you an example from my life. About seven years ago, um, I had like the worst ministry experience, maybe the worst life experience ever of my life, um, which includes closing a church. So like if it's worse than that, then you know like, oh, wow, that must have been really bad, Wes, okay? Um, And so I was getting ready to like make some changes to like our student ministry at the previous church I served at and I was a part of. And so I called this meeting where like all the parents of high schoolers and middle schoolers came in. I was going to tell them about this. And so the meeting went, terribly. Like, it could not have went worse. Um, I felt like I did an okay, you know, it wasn't like, you know, Abraham Lincoln Gettysburg address level, good leading it, you know, but it was like an okay job leading it. But after I fin- kind of said my spiel, parents stood up and they were like yelling at me and they were like saying nasty things about me. And then like, there was a lady that caught wind of some of the changes we were going to make. So she wasn't there, but she, so she didn't even listen to me, but she like wrote a letter and gave it to like one of the parents to make sure that it got read at the meeting. So that was really great. Then I went home and like the parents went on Facebook and then they started like tearing me a new one on Facebook, which was really great. It's just a real wonderful time in my life. So by the end of the day, I was pretty shattered. I was pretty scarred. Uh, My already very fragile shards of my ego were broken even further, you know. Um, I was also single at the time, so I was like living alone. And I remember that night, I was like, I cannot like go to sleep just by myself. Like this is not going to work. So like I popped in um, season one, DVD number one of Modern Family, and uh, Modern Family, Cam and Mitchell watched me fall asleep that evening, okay, as I was doing that. And that began the habit that honestly lived supreme in my life for like months, if not years afterwards, where I could just not be alone. I could not be quiet. If I was in my car, I had music on, I had a podcast going. When I was at home, uh, cleaning the house, doing whatever it was I was doing, like the TV had to be on in the background. I had to have a podcast. I had that music going on, like all this kind of stuff. I could not fall asleep without my phone playing something in the background while I fell asleep. And the reason is because without that noise, all of a sudden it was silence. And all of a sudden in the silence, all the hurt, all the fear, all the like just crazy wild emotions I was feeling in that season following, um, like it was all going to bubble to the surface and I could not handle it. I had to be distracted. It, was, it felt like my only option. Um, we live, here's kind of my point, uh, that permanent distraction is a state many of us live in. I'm going to move my, yeah, just trying to distract you. Anyway, um, permanent distraction is a state that many of us live in, okay? Um, we are always kind of distracted from all kinds of different stuff. Blaise Pascal, 
Uh, this is one of my favorite quotes. Uh, Blaise Pascal was a mathematician, philosopher, and theologian. So kids, we call that triple threat. And that's what uh, Blaise Pascal was. Blaise Pascal says, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Okay. Now, here's what's really interesting. Blaise Pascal wrote these words in the 17th century. Okay. That's the 1600s, kids. Now, Let's just all list all the things from the 1600s that we still use to distract ourselves today. I'll, I'll just sit and wait. Right, like no, nothing. It's like, oh, movable type. Oh, wow, you know, like, uh, like they didn't have indoor plumbing. Okay, Blaise Pascal would look at the little house on the prairie and go, wow, that's so advanced right now, right? Because like he wrote hundreds of years before Laura Ingalls Wilder was even around. Yeah, I was reading a book while I was on sabbatical and the guy talked about how he was sick one day and he decided to download season one of Little House on the Prairie with I think like Michael Landon was like the big star in it. And he said like, you know, when you're sick, you know, you're just like watching Price is Right and whatever junk on TV, you know. And he was like, I got like five minutes in and I was about ready to blow my brains out because it is so slow. He's like, episode one was just, Pa was looking for a new horse. And that was the episode. Like, that was it, you know, like, and he was just saying, like, it's even like the way the cuts are done in the, in the filming, like, like, it's just so not fast. At, it's so slow, right? And it's just kind of like, man, it's just typical of the age we live in. Blaise Pascal says, hey, part of our problem is we are perpetually distracted and we are perpetually distracting ourselves from ourselves. Meanwhile, the problems that we are trying to often distract ourselves from still fester and wound us on the inside, and they cause problems in our present, whether we realize it or not. Um, here's kind of our problem in a nutshell. Escapism. Escapism is the practice of trying to use something to escape. Um, I remember a few years ago, a guy, again, at the previous church I served, um, named David. And David was an alcoholic for decades of his life. Um, unfortunately, he eventually passed away from a stroke due to complications caused by his many years of drinking. But David eventually got sober, and he actually led a 12-step recovery program at our church. And uh, I remember hearing David speak one time to a group of people about addiction. And I'll never forget, David said, yeah, when I was an alcoholic, I drank not because of how it made me feel, but because of how it made me not feel. And that was so, pro like I'd never thought about that before. It's like a 22, 23 year old kid. But David was saying like, yeah, it wasn't because alcohol was this huge draw. It was that, man, I had a lot of fear. I had a lot of self-loathing. I had a lot of anger from my childhood. I had all this kind of different stuff that was kicking around on the inside of me. And alcohol was just a convenient and simple way for me to be able to escape from that. Now, you and I, right? I mean, I guess that's a huge problem in our world today, right? Alcohol, marijuana, you know, the opioid epidemic, right? Like we see that in the news all the time, the different ways we used to escape. But a lot of us, I mean, you don't have to do something illegal or illicit to escape, 
right? We, we do it all the time, okay? Um, we have a three-hour-a-night escape that we call Hulu or Food Network TV or Amazon Prime, right? Um, you have an escape that you call retail therapy, right? Like, that's a thing, okay? We can talk about uh, pornography, and, like, that's an escape. We can talk about, uh, like, all these kind of different ways that we just get lost in kind of escaping reality and escaping and running from the things that we are afraid of inside of our selves. Now, some of you might listen, and you kind of think, well, what's, what's the big deal? Like, it's just a little hobby. It's just like an hour six of, you know, season whatever on Netflix, right? It's just like this thing or that, that. Like, hey, I'm not hurting anyone. It's not illegal. What's the big deal? Who cares, right? And good question. Here's the only point I'm trying to make to you today is our attempts to escape are ineffective. They aren't helpful. We are permanently bound to them right? When I told you earlier about kind of my noise problem, like I just always had to have noise going on in the background, right? My problems and the things I was trying to escape didn't go away. And in fact, the law of diminishing returns, which many of us are uh, aware of, you know, the idea that it takes more and more of something to kind of fill the void, right? To get the same high or the same kick, right? That in fact, my, my escapism technique, whatever that is, it's just going to spin more and more out of control until either like I just reach a point where it's not manageable or I deal with whatever I'm feeling like I need to escape from in the first place. Our attempts at escape are ineffective. In the meantime, we're kind of killing our lives because we are, title of the series, we are doing too much, right? We, we cannot be silent. We cannot be alone. We cannot be a quiet, quiet. We cannot escape ourselves. And that's where God enters in with the solution that I want to propose to us today, okay? Um, here's the solution. You aren't going to like it. <laughs> that's great. Here, here's the answer. You're going to hate it. Uh, okay. Solitude, okay? Solitude is the practice of forgoing all noise and distractions so I can be, here's the two keys that solitude accomplishes. I am alone with God and alone with myself, Okay? Here's the things I want you to understand about solitude here. Solitude is not prayer, okay, though prayer may be involved. Solitude is not I'm reading my Bible or something like that, though that you may be spurred to do that or that might occur to you over the course of that time. Solitude is literally I'm just sitting here in a quiet space alone with God and alone with myself. And that's it. It is as unspectacular as that. I was talking to someone about this practice a few weeks ago, and they were like, that sounds terrible. Like, that sounds awful. And I was like, yeah, it has been really fun to learn this little habit in my life. But that's what solitude is. Now, we resist it, but again, perhaps our resistance is just endemic of the reason we have all the problems with this in the first place, right? God is a big fan of silence and solitude. If you open the Bible, you will not see, there's not like a verse in the Bible that's like, thou shalt practiceth solitudeth or anything like that, okay? But what you will discover is God is a big fan of silence and solitude, okay? I'm just going to kind of blitz through a few examples here. Some of you are familiar with these words from the book of Ecclesiastes. You thought they were a song by the birds from the 60s. They're actually from the Bible, okay? Copyright infringement. Anyway, uh, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. And then the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us like a time to live, a time. And he does that anyway. But one of the things he says is there is a time to be silent and a time to speak, right? So there's a time 
for silence. Wisdom dictates there's a time for silence. If you grew up in church, it is like a law, an immutable law of the universe. If you've went to church more than five times as a kid, you heard this verse, okay? Psalm uh, 46.10, God says, be still and know that I am God. I think my mom probably has like seven needlepoint pillows in her house that have that verse on it or something, okay? Be still, know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth, okay? Now, don't miss what I missed for 33 years, which is it is in stillness I come to know God. Like, Knowing God, and when the Bible talks about knowing someone, it usually means that in the sense of like intimate, like relational knowledge, knowing, okay? My intimate relationship with God is directly connected to my willingness to be still, i.e. be silent, be quiet, right? Um, but of course, like it's not just like a couple isolated verses on silence. One of the biggest reasons we have to practice silence is because of the life and example of Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, you think like, hey, Jesus is like the son of God. Jesus is like the perfect example of what God would do with human skin on, right? And so Jesus, uh, this was all over his life. Um, when Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, you know, like he, he teaches us that, Jesus actually gave us the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer. It was an example uh, for how we should pray, you know? And so uh, Jesus, though, a part we don't give a lot of press to is that Jesus doesn't just say the Lord's Prayer. Jesus actually gives us like some context and some pointers and some tips for like how to pray. And Jesus kicks off that context in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew's biography of Jesus' life. Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. So get alone, get quiet, get silent. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret, in solitude, will reward you. So Jesus says both, hey, when you want to know God intimately and personally, getting alone is a good idea. And also, if you get alone, you will find it rewarding. Okay, Jesus says both of those things. Now, Jesus, unlike a lot of us, did not just be like, hey, do what I say, not as I do. Okay, Jesus lived this out. Okay, Mark, biographer of Jesus' life. Jesus opens up, Jesus in the book of Mark, he is always on the move, man. Like, he is always up to something. And so, Jesus, like, he kicks off, he, like, is, goes to church for the first time and casts a demon out of a guy, which I had to be a real exciting day for everyone. And then everyone was, like, so impressed with Jesus that that night, they're like, hey, Jesus, like, everyone in town is just going to line up outside your door and, like, you know, we want you to heal us. And so, Jesus all night was, like, healing people who had everything from, like, the worst disease, like paralysis and cancer and all these kind of things, down to like some guys like, hey, I stubbed my toe this morning. Yeah, would you have, right? Like everything in between. Jesus is helping that. So it's a real long day for Jesus. I don't know what it's like to heal a person. Like, you know, uh, maybe it's not that tiring. I don't know. But Jesus is up pretty late. And like, I imagine there's some effort that you expend, okay? But then Mark tells us after this like all night healing thing, here's what Jesus did. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, so we're like talking way before everyone gets up, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So Jesus got alone with God. He prayed, yes. It is hard for me to imagine that when Jesus prayed, it wasn't like four straight hours of talking, right? Like it, there was certainly some listening. There was certainly just some being quiet, 
being in my heavenly father's presence. Jesus, in fact, we're told, like next verse, uh, Simon and his companions, Jesus' disciples, went to look for him. So like Jesus was so committed to this, he got up super early to do it and he didn't tell anyone where he was going. And again, because this is like 27 AD, you know, they couldn't just hit him up on Snapchat and be like, yo, Jesus, where you at? You know, like, like he's alone. And like the image is kind of like, everyone's like, I thought he was with you. Like, I thought he was at your place. Where'd he go? We lost the son of God. Oh my God. You know, like that kind of thing. Okay. Jesus, uh, continuing on, when Jesus uh, begins his ministry, uh, Jesus kicks off his ministry, gets baptized, and then the very next day, Luke, in his biography of Jesus' life, tells us what Jesus does. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, like the, the region around the uh, Jordan River, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where, for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of the days, he was hungry. Thanks, Luke. That was real informative, buddy. Um, but I want you to see this. Jesus, like, he has this big moment where we're told, like, the heavens open up and the dove descends on Jesus and a voice comes from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. Everyone's like, oh, this is so good, so good, so good. And Jesus is like, you know how I'm going to roll out my ministry? With 40 days of silence in the wilderness. Oh, oh, so exciting. You know, like, that'd be like us at Crossbridge being like, hey, guys, for the first 40 days we're in this new location, we're just going to sit and do nothing. You know, like we're just, it's going to be so great, you know, like that kind of thing. But Jesus, again, this was so important to him. He knew, hey, if I'm going to do this like three years of packed up ministry, whatever it is, like I am going to have to be focused on, on hearing, knowing, seeing God in the silence, in the wilderness, right? That was a practice of Jesus. That was a practice of his life. Okay, continuing on. Uh, Jesus, we're told, so he feeds like thousands of people one time when he was teaching. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. So this wasn't like, hey, they just kind of were like, hey, Jesus, why don't you stay here and do this thing? And I'm just going to kind of casually head over. Like, no, Jesus like, go away. Leave me alone, right? Like, please leave. Jesus made them get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd, everyone that was around. And then we're told what Jesus' party animal did. After he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. So Jesus, again, alone for hours at a time. Yes, probably praying. Yes, probably doing it right. But like certainly also practicing solitude with God, right? Because this is a practice. This is a fundamental thing of Jesus' life, okay? So much so, this is my last verse I'll share with you. Luke, the biographer of Jesus' life, the guy who interviewed the eyewitnesses to everything Jesus said and did, Luke just tells us, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often got alone by himself for the only purpose of being with God. What things in your life do you think people would say, hey, they do that often, right? Oh, I eat often, right? Oh, I talk to you on the weekends often. Those are the only two things I do. With, I read my Bible. Those are the three things I do in my entire life right there. I just told you all that. Um, like the things I often do are probably do not include oh, I'm going to spend time alone with God, right? Like that, that's not necessarily something that we actively or often do, okay? But yet for Jesus, he did. Now, again, 
I just implore you, if Jesus, the Son of God, saw something as good, necessary, and important to do to maintain his spiritual life in this world, to, to know God well, like, who am I to be like, oh, well, Jesus, I mean, you know, rookie over here, you know, like, whatever, right? Like, no, of course, if G, maybe part of the reason our lives don't look like Jesus more is because we don't embrace practices like what Jesus did. Um, part of the reason that I think solitude is so important, I got three reasons for you why I think this is so important and why I think we should do this. Number one, solitude makes us aware of what's going on on the inside of us, okay? Um, I was trying this earlier in the week. I, I took like an hour on Monday to practice some solitude. I got maybe about 10 minutes into that time and all of a sudden, well, I recognize, again, just sitting there alone like an idiot, you know, on my back porch, you know, I all of a sudden realized how much, like, I, I felt a ton of guilt just bubbling up to the surface. I felt guilty about ways I'd messed up in the past. I felt guilty about ways I've kind of impacted our marriage negatively. I felt guilty about, like, oh, man, I've dragged, like, people I love into, like, all these things. They aren't, like, wrong or bad or anything. It's just, like, a challenge that comes with knowing and being in relationship with me. I felt guilt about, like, things in my life that I feel like I'm just, like, not measuring up at or guilt about not doing it. You know, like, all these kind of things, right? Now, that was right under the surface the whole time. But I didn't recognize it until I sat in silence and allowed myself to feel and hear that, okay? Here's what's so important about solitude. That stuff was there the whole time. I just didn't know about it, okay? Here's what's so important about that. When we are distracted, constantly on the move, avoiding listening to what's going on on the inside of us, it is not that that stuff disappears or doesn't influence us in our actions. Oh, no, it sure does. I'm just ignorant of it. So I might as well listen and hear so that I can deal with it instead of just continually being driven by factors and forces I don't understand. Second reason why solitude is important. It reminds us God doesn't need us to be God for him. Again, um, I have this list of 16 practices since I've come back from sabbatical a few weeks ago that I'm trying to incorporate in my life on the regular, okay? One of those is every Monday morning, first thing in my work day, I spend an hour of solitude with God. I hate it. It's the dumb, I hate, I, like, I was thinking about it today. I'm like, oh, shoot, Monday is tomorrow. You know, like, I got to do this again, Okay. Because, like, this is so antithetical to me. Like, I want to be active. I want to do something. I want to, like, be a difference maker. I want to do all this kind of stuff, okay? Like, this is not me. One day, I'm sitting at Lake Ella on one of the benches, you know, watching the ducks or whatever stupid stuff you do at Lake Ella, you know, just sitting there like, oh, there's another duck. Great, you know? And I'm sitting there, again, like an idiot, you know, thinking, God, there's like so many better uses of my time. Like I could be this, I could be that. And I'm, not, and I'm, think, I'm like running through, tacking through the list in my mind, thinking, God, there is so much stuff to do. Who's going to do it all? How's it all going to get done? And I felt very clearly a sensing from God of like, yeah, that's kind of the point. That's why you're doing this. Because whatever needs to be accomplished you're going to need to trust me. 
One of the reasons I practice solitude is because it is a hard reset for my mind, body, and spirit that God can do more with 90% of my time than I can do with 100. In fact, God can do more with 80% of my time, 70% of my, 1% of my time, infinitesimal percents of my time than I can do with 100 because he is God, okay? I am not. Solitude reminds me of that. Here's a third thing solitude does. Solitude frees us from needing to justify ourselves. One of the things I realize over my life in this past season is I do so much activity in my life, not because I feel called to it, not because it's a good idea, not because I think like it's important, but because I don't want people to think I'm lazy, okay? I have like the pastor guilt, and so like the big thing about pastors is like, we're like, oh, it must be hard working your one day of the week, you know, that, it's like a half day at that, you know, like that kind of thing, right? And like, I'm like, I'm not going to be a lazy pastor. I'm going to do all the things, you know, that kind of thing, right? And so I'm going to do the work of seven staff, you know, whatever it is, right? And, and it's not that anyone's asking me to, it's not that anyone's telling me to, it is all an incessant need to like justify my existence, Right? Uh, the great Dallas Willard, a guy who I talk about a lot, spiritual titan of the late 20th century. He was also the chair of philosophy at this little place we like to call the University of Southern California. So, you know, real dummy, you know. Anyway, so Dr. Willard was teaching a philosophy class. And at the end of this class, a student stood up and uh, kind of aggressively uh, and said some stuff like, you know, just in class discussion where he stood up and he was talking to Dr. Willard and he said some stuff that was both wrong, like it was just incorrect, and it was offensive. Uh, so it was nasty and mean, you know, he's being a punk. And after, and Dr. Willard stood there, you know, he's, he looks at him, he's listening very patiently, making eye contact, being very gentle and Dallas Willard-like. And then when this kid finished doing his spiel, Dr. Willard looked around at the classroom and said, hey, you know, that feels like a good spot for us to stop today. I'll see you next time, you know, and dismiss the class. And after the class is over, a bunch of students stay behind, and they're basically like, what are you doing here? Like, why, why don't you set that punk in this place? We all hate the guy. Like, we were begging for you to do it, you know? And Dallas Willard said one of the most brilliant things in the world. He said, you know what? I'm practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. Because... People who practice solitude really well, they don't need to justify themselves. They are not beholden to others' opinions of them. Because they have found the freedom that comes with being right with themselves and being right with God and recognizing that ultimately your opinion and your understanding of me matters very little in the long run, right? This isn't some headstrong, I'm going to do what I want, YOLO, you know, go your own way, let's, cr let's crank that up, you know, like, no, it's not that kind of thing, right? It's not like irresponsibility, okay? This is that settled, you know, like the people you meet, and it's just like, they are so amazing because they are just so settled and like on point, and they understand their purpose and what their life's about, and they're just on it, you know, like they aren't insecure, they aren't easily, they're like the antithesis of me, right? They aren't easily swayed by other people all the time, right? Solitude is part of the process that God uses to transform us into that kind of person. So, here's some tips to get started. I don't want to leave you hanging because I know this is a big thing, okay? Four tips to help you get started. Tip number one, I want you to try starting with the little solitudes throughout your day. If you wake up first thing in the morning and you drink coffee, here's what I'll bet a million percent of us do. 
Um, I get up, I make my coffee, I pull out my phone, I'm looking at, oh, Facebook, yeah, oh, man, that's really important. Oh, yeah, she got a new purse, and uh, he, oh, yeah. Or I look at, like, <laughs> I saw this thing on Facebook this week that was like, there is no person in the world I hate more than me from my memories 11 years ago or something <laughs> like that, which I thought was so true. Uh, you know, but like I'm looking at that or I turn on the news or I'm looking at the news on my phone or I'm, you know, I'm playing uh, Wordle or whatever the thing is everyone's doing now, you know, or like the stupid green and yellow squares, like, like whatever it is, right? Like we do that. How about instead of doing that, like when you pour your first cup of coffee, you like literally just sit at the table by yourself and just say, hey, I'm just going to do nothing until I finish this first cup of coffee or tea or whatever it is, right? Um, when you drive to work or to class or whatever it is that you do, when you're caught in traffic, the same traffic that makes us hate the Lord's existence, right? God, where are you? You know, this is like the, I'm like an ancient prophet now. Oh, oh Lord, why is Mayhem the capital circle so terrible, you know, or whatever it is, right? Instead of crying out to the Lord, right? Like I can actually embrace that as an opportunity to practice some solitude, right? As a place where I can just kind of, be in silence. I don't have my radio on. I don't have podcasts going. Like, I'm just literally sitting there, right? Um, at the end of the day, when kids are tucked in for bed or I'm wrapped up with whatever I'm doing, right? Like, what if I just went on like a 10 minute walk, right? I used to think that solitude was like something that it's like, well, if you can't do 29 hours in a row, just forget it, you know, that kind of thing. And like I told you earlier, it took me about 10 minutes to recognize that thing about guilt I was telling you earlier. And especially if this is a new habit for us in our lives, my guess is a lot of us are going to be the same way, right? It is not going to take a super long time for us all of a sudden to kind of be aware of the stuff that's jumbled around and bouncing around on the inside of us. Here's a second tip for us. Uh, pay attention to the tension that's inside of you. And basically, this is just my way of saying, when I notice I am the most resistant to this idea of solitude, that is an indication of when I need it the most. <laughs> that's an indicate, like when I'm like, no, I do not want to be in silence. Well, guess what that tells me about myself? I'm probably trying to avoid something. I'm probably trying to distract myself from something. I'm probably trying to escape from something. And if that's the boat that you find yourself in, I'm dead serious. By the end of the day today, you need to take a first step with this. Like, because when I find that I feel that way, I find this equally essential for me to take a step to get started. Here's my third tip for helping you out. Give your phone a bedtime and give it its own bedroom. Okay? Best Christian I ever met in my entire life is a guy named Rick McElmurray. And my wife's laughing because she also knows Rick. Okay. Rick, like, one time, Rick was like an executive. He had like a job in downtown Chicago and he would like have like a 45 minute commute each way, each day, or whatever. And one time, I remember Rick telling me that he put his phone away every night at 6 p.m. and he would put it away in like this dining room that his family never went into. And I would, I stared at Rick like, you look like a human, but you clearly are not. Like something is wrong with you right now or whatever it is. You know, like, like what, and I'm sure Rick was, could see the look on my face like, what demonry is this? You know, like that kind of thing. But that is so, so smart, right? You don't have to pick 6 p.m. because, you know, you're probably not a saint like Rick is. I'm certainly not, okay? But my point is, I think you should pick a time where you say, hey, at this point, phone's going to bed, tablet's going to bed, you know, whatever, TV's going off, whatever it is. Like, I think that's such a valuable idea. And I'm actually going to give it its own bedroom. Like, it's not going to sleep with me. 
Um, I was talking to a friend on Sunday, and my friend had mentioned that he had just adopted the simple practice of he got an alarm clock, and he put his phone in, like, their kitchen or something like that. And he said, you know what? That one practice alone has been enormously changing because he said the first thing I would do when I would wake up, I would pick up my phone, I immediately go to email, and all of a sudden, first thing, I'm in work mode. Like, I'm immediately distracted. I'm immediately focused on the things that don't matter the most in my life. And he's like, the simple act of just moving it physically away from me has made a world of impact on my spiritual, mental, and emotional health in the simple one or two weeks I've been doing that. Final thing. I want to encourage you to plan for it, okay? Um, If we have a vision and an intention to do this, to experience the life of God that leads us away from doing too much, you can do this. You can find the means available to you. But the question is, am I willing enough to plan for it? Now, here's the challenge. This is not going to happen naturally. You know, it's very rare that I get to the end of my day. I was like, wow, that was a nice unprompted half hour of solitude I enjoyed today. You know, like, I don't know what world you live in. That is not the world I live in, okay? I have to plan for it, okay? I I guess I'm here to encourage you to say, hey, it's worth it. Whether the worth it is like, hey, I'm going to get up a little early. I'm going to go to bed a little later. Whether it's worth it is, you know, I'm going to drive an extra, I'm going to drive the longer way home. I'm going to, you know, hey, I'm going to coordinate with spouse on kids and transfer of all that. And like, whatever you have to do, I'm just encouraging you, plan for it. Give it a shot. Experiment with it. See if it's helpful to you. It has been helpful to me. And what's kind of ironic about a lot of the things that are helpful to us is oftentimes they feel really painful to us, right? My resistance is actually an indication of the habit and behavior I need to chase after the most. Solitude is one of the things that God uses and has established to be something that brings us and establishes us in his peace. It makes sense. If I have a problem with doing too much, one of the ways to stop that is to do less. In fact, do nothing, right? Like, like that's going to be one of the ways that we are led out of this. And so that's my encouragement to you this week.